Hello and welcome to the very first Black Voices Cornwall podcast. My name is Chloe Peglau and I will be your host for the podcast as I guide you through an exploration of the non-white experience of our wonderful county. Each month I bring a different guest whose unique story will inform and inspire you. We will listen to poetry and music created by our community, talk about the achievements of our fantastic activist group, Black Voices Cornwall, and let you know how you can be actively anti-racist in our community and beyond. In this month's episode, I am interviewing Ivan Clark. I've been really excited to talk to Ivan since first meeting him at a Black Voices Cornwall event earlier in the year. He's an executive support officer for the Devon and Cornwall Police Service, so as well as providing the valuable perspective of moving to Cornwall as a mixed-race child in the 1980s, he also has the unique experience of being one of the few non-white officers in the Southwest Policing Service. We're also going to have an introduction to the work of Black Voices Cornwall, some fabulous poetry from local writer Josephine Hall, and we'll learn about the very important work of Five Times More, a campaign fighting against the inequality in pregnancy outcomes for black and brown women in the UK. Before we start, I'll take this time to mention that this podcast does cover topics that you may find triggering. Particularly, today, we will be covering some issues of racism and pregnancy loss. If you feel like this may be difficult to listen to, please take some space and come back when you feel ready. Enjoy the show. to use this section of the podcast to introduce you to Black Voices Cornwall. So Black Voices Cornwall was established in the summer of 2020 after the black community in Cornwall were forced together through the consequences of the tragic murder of George Floyd. This allowed our community to connect in a way that hadn't been possible before. Black Voices Cornwall aimed to support and educate all persons and partners to engage and communicate effectively in race talks. Our mission statement is simple. Black Voices Cornwall exists to enable Cornwall to become an actively anti-racist region. We will bring increased awareness and empowerment through communication, education and unification. And we're doing this through 10 aims and objectives. So, the first aim is to create and establish a Race Equalities Council. We're hoping to promote and provide the education of black history and awareness in education, including higher education, community and workplace settings. We're hoping to provide equality, diversity and anti-racism training to upskill governors, managers and the workforce to increase awareness. We want to help embed a culture of zero tolerance to racism in Cornwall. We want to support and encourage the celebration of non-white culture in Cornwall as well. We want to work in partnership with organisations such as the council, the police, Citizens Advice, the NHS, mental health services and other key partnerships to ensure a visible, fair and appropriate representation of BAME residents throughout Cornwall. We want to support and challenge the strategic direction of the local authority regarding BAME inequalities and activities. We want to challenge the injustice and racial bias within the judicial system. We want to support health and social care, community and wellbeing projects. And finally, we also want to facilitate BAME businesses and enterprises within Cornwall. 
In each episode, we're going to take a look at how the organisation is working to achieve these aims and we'll celebrate the amazing successes that have been made so far. I am incredibly excited to share with you our first interview. I was delighted to welcome Yvonne Clark, an Executive Support Officer with the Devon and Cornwall Police Service, to the podcast. I hope you enjoy. So, welcome to our first interview. Really excited to be talking to you today. I think we met at the mixed race conversations that we had for Black Voices Cornwall. I was really inspired and interested by your story, and I think despite the fact you're a few years older than me, I think a lot of our experiences really resonated and seemed really familiar and I'm really excited to speak to you a little bit more so if you can start with your name yeah um yeah go ahead introduce yourself thank yeah, you very so, much yeah um, so my name's Ivan Clark I've lived in Cornwall since 1983 so from the tender age of eight so you can probably do the maths there and yeah I'm a mixed race my mum's from Trinidad so she's um of African heritage and my dad's uh, a white man from Essex. So there you are, that's me. So actually, when we first spoke in the mixed race conversations, you'd just got your, was it Ancestry DNA or one of those yes. profiles? And you also mentioned you've been doing more investigations into your heritage. Um, is there anything you'd like to share about that that you've learned? Yeah, so um, at the start of the year, I, um, I could only go back on my mum's side um, two generations beyond her. So that was her parents and then her father's mother and her mother's mother. Uh, on my dad's side, I could go back to the 1400s. So very lopsided there in terms of you know, what I know. And that caused me to feel quite um, isolated as well. Um, however, in the last six months, um, I have traced family back to the plantation they escaped from to fight with the British in 1812. The fact that they were given parcels of land in Trinidad for fighting the British and that they were free when they landed there. And um, also the picture of the man who, um, who enslaved them. Wow. <laughs> and his name, John Cooper, from the um, St. Simon's Island in Georgia on the Hamilton Plantation. So that is absolutely amazing that I can go back to the 1700s and I don't think I'm too far from finding an ancestors that were born in Africa, and that's my ultimate aim. Yeah, I think that's um, one of the most difficult things, I think, especially people from um, Caribbean heritage, the fact that your ancestors were ripped from their land. As obviously, the slavery and the trauma of that is, is profound, but that's also... a deeply tragic thing to have lost is that connection with Africa and your heritage is African by way of the Caribbean isn't it and I think it's it's easy to I mean Caribbean's got such an incredible culture that is so diverse and has to be embraced but it's kind of sad to think about the African culture that's been lost just because we don't know where people have come from and especially for African Americans as well like even more just sort of dumped in in the deep south, distributed amongst plantations, they've got nothing to connect them back to Africa, and that is compounding trauma as well. So I think, you know, what adds an entirely other 
complex level to that is spending you know the majority of your life in Cornwall so I'd like to ask what impact do you think growing up and maturing and living in Cornwall has had on your identity that that way that we identify ourselves that understanding of who we are yeah I'll let you expand on that before I kind of prompt you any further yeah so um growing up in a village that is no more than probably 12 miles from Land's End uh, in 1983, having come from a very mixed and diverse area uh, near London, was a massive eye-opener because my mum came over from the Caribbean and she settled in a fairly diverse area. But when we moved to Cornwall, we really were among the only people that weren't white. And just to sort of paint you a picture, when we arrived, we couldn't just be that mixed-race family that sold their council house and moved to a farm... Um, there was a legend created where um, my mum was an African princess and she was banished from Africa for marrying a ginger man, you know, from England. And so my sister and I were prince and princess. So as sweet as that is, it's also ridiculous and a strange way to start your life, to be honest, in, in Cornwall. Yeah, absolutely. It's that. It's the fascination, isn't it? Because it, it sometimes presents as kind of fetishisation. These are like... African princes and princesses and then obviously that fascination as we've I'm sure both experienced more often manifests as it's like an obsession isn't it an obsession with who you are where you're from what you're doing how can I make sure that you feel as othered as you can in in any given situation how did you find your time at school were you kind of did you just sort of slide in did you feel separate throughout your education so i developed a self-defense mechanism of humor so i ended up being the class clown yeah because i was aware i was very different was i bullied no um stupid comments people always wanted to touch the afro which is fine so that's probably why it's fallen off it's been rubbed too much so school was okay it was a lovely school there was only 80 pupils there and it was right next to my house and it, it was a really nice experience strange things went on like if there was a school book with a black girl in it people would laugh and say oh that's Ivan's girlfriend so I thought am I supposed to have a girlfriend that isn't white because I never have ever so that was sort of interesting and then there would be jokes like oh is Mr T your uncle or do you know Michael Jackson and it's just the obvious stuff but it definitely did make you feel othered and then I think in that situation, you start to get a complex. You do get a complex, and it's a complex that I've carried into adulthood, and I'm trying to deconstruct that. But when you walk into a room, you feel like people are staring at you, even if they might not be, and it is something that you carry. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really recognise that, that feeling, and I think definitely there's a, a lot of parts of Cornwall that I feel anxious going to, because even though the people are probably fine and probably don't care what I'm doing, that lifetime of microaggressions, because it is microaggressions, isn't it? Okay, it's a joke that people mm. are saying, Mr. T's your uncle, but it just builds up and builds up to this low-level trauma inside of you, and it comes back every time you're in a situation where you are othered, which, apart from in probably Falmouth, Truro and Newquay, let's say, you by and large will be the only person of colour on the street and that's including any other ethnicity isn't it so I think 
let's talk a little bit more about your life. You said you had a fairly okay time. I'm, I'm guessing the primary school was the AT students school. And then how about high school? Mm. Did you go to university, move away for some time? So I went to Helston School. And there were probably three students of colour there. And maybe one teacher who never taught me. Um, so what was that like? Yeah, I did get called some um, racial slurs. And I wasn't really pushed around because, again, I had my humour and I learned how to deal with difficult situations and not get physically injured because that's what happens. So got through school, but because I was a class clown, could have done better. Had great potential. And then I, I left um, for a while. No, I did A-levels. Then I... Then I the, yeah, then I did some um, some college courses. Then I went away to Israel on a kibbutz, actually, at age 19, and that was brilliant. And then when I came back from there, I started just do, doing jobs here and there until eventually I followed a couple of friends of mine into the police, where I've been ever since. So from 2001, at age 26, I've been a police officer. How has it felt to be so isolated in your role? Joining an organisation such as the police, which is so alien to civilian life, I think for anybody, it's a big step. Unless it's been... So there are people whose generations have been in the police and they've followed their family in. But for me, it was something that I'd never experienced. So going from civilian life to being a police officer was a big enough jump. But being the only person that looked like me in a... In a environment that was after Stephen Lawrence, mm-hmm. uh, McPherson report, and people paranoid about talking about race, I ended up in an organisation where it was microaggressions because people didn't want to really talk to me about anything meaningful in that way because they were afraid of getting it wrong. And in avoiding subjects, it makes conversations very awkward. So... Um, I, in the end, I think I normalised just being... I normalised behaviour and acted as if... Uh, in a way that I thought I was expected to, shall we say. So minimised the difference in me and tried to cover as much as possible. And that's how I got through. And only very recently have I begun really exploring, probably in the last two years, you know, my heritage. But bringing that out to improve our culture within the police... That's fantastic and really interesting. I think, I mean, I don't know too much about it, but I think sort of post the McPherson report, because that's what came out after um, Stephen Lawrence, wasn't it? And that sort of 90s kind of, um, you know, everybody was riding on that kind of capitalism high. It just seems like a really idolised era, the 90s, the early 2000s. And I think... England was starting to feel as though it was in a post-racial era in that time as well. So I, I, it's interesting to hear that, you know, people knew within... I think if you'd been serving 10, 20 years before them, that things could have been just outrageously, mm. outright mm. abusive. However, people were starting to think, OK, we mm. can't do this, but... No. Whether it was intentional or unintentional, those comments do make you feel othered, and I think... Again, it doesn't have to be within your specific place of work. It can be within any community in a white-dominated area that people are saying these things that just make you squeeze everything almost, isn't it? It's like, oh, I don't know how that makes me feel. 
hearing that. I can't react in a certain way because I don't want to make it about race. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? In these contexts, we're always... I mean, I'm certainly speaking for myself, hyper aware of making it about race when I'm a person of colour, mm-hmm. you know, and you don't want to be defined as that person who makes mm-hmm. it about race, mm-hmm. but it's so important and I think it sounds like you're sort of starting to realise that, you know, we shouldn't have been expected for so long to just let these things slide off our backs, like, you know, like water on a duck's back kind of analogy, and it's okay to, to talk about these things that fit, and not force, because nothing should ever be forced, but encourage these uncomfortable conversations. So part of my role now is I've got a portfolio for internal culture and, um, and race. Mm. So um, part of my remit is to encourage all officers and staff at whatever level in the organisation to have difficult conversations or just to have conversations about race. So part of that is um, we have 25 new students as part of the uplift every month. And I give an input to them to, um, to start that conversation, to help them understand um, concepts such as what race is, what racism is, what white privilege is, and, um, and what discrimination is. How to have those conversations, give them permission to make mistakes uh, and not be afraid of saying the wrong thing. And, and the level of engagement from the students is phenomenal because they've come into the organisation as outsiders and a lot of them are very open and sort of in touch with a lot of the stuff that's going on. And um, what I'm finding is, and it is, it's to be expected, and I'm institutionalised to a certain extent, that if you have worked in an organisation for decades, it can be really difficult then to start having conversations where saying the wrong thing makes you think you might be disciplined for it so actually it's about creating that space and telling people it is safe to do that because it's if if you don't mean harm by saying the wrong thing it's okay to say it as long as when it's pointed out you can apologize and say okay what can I do to to improve or to have less of an impact on, on how you feel when I speak so it's those conversations the trouble is we've got to keep delivering business as usual which is keeping people safe whilst giving our officers space to do this and there aren't enough of us to do that so the challenge is how do we do that whilst working 24 7 yeah absolutely i think it's really encouraging to hear because i think we we can be under no illusion that there is a good relationship between people of color and the police and it's it really great to hear that you know 25 new students are coming through and that is that within Devon and Cornwall police mm-hmm. yeah. yeah um each you know each time and I think absolutely it's just so important to create a really safe space you know I think we're all ready to talk to white people about their privilege and it's essential that they understand that and you know I think the term white fragility gets thrown around quite a lot as well but anyone will be fragile when you're pointing out the flaws in their behavior and i think it's as like you say as long as it's points that are being made without any malice behind them it's it, the right thing to do is to give them that softness and to almost nurture them through 
the experience of bettering themselves and if they come with that attitude to be ready and they're young they're you know their eyes are open to the issues of the world then it's absolutely the right way to go to go about it and ultimately you will be making people safer that's the whole point isn't it so you also mentioned about trying to manage this development of the police officers and you know anti-racism I suppose I don't know exactly what you'd call it within the service whilst also trying to police the the whole of Devon and Cornwall mm. and that it's difficult, I guess, to strike that balance with, with limited resources. Mm. And I think, personally, it's really important that every organisation, no matter what size it is, has that within its training. But what do you think we could be doing in society to prepare mm. your potential officers mm. more when they come in? Yeah, so in 30 years we'll have a whole new workforce, simple, pretty much. And so actually, what can we do? And so when we talk about what needs doing... You've got to go back quite a way, haven't you? Because I think it would take two or three generations, even if we're all working as hard as we can to dismantle the systems that perpetuate racism and um, myths. So if we could go back two or three generations, what could we have done differently? So, for instance, um, people in Trinidad and Jamaica were British citizens. And when they came over to the UK they had already learned all about Britain. They didn't learn about Jamaica or Trinidad, they learned about Britain. So they felt that they were part of Britain. And when they arrived, and they were just called um, racial slurs and couldn't, couldn't get you know, um, accommodation, let alone anything else, let alone respect. When I learned that, it really made me think that, um, well, the, the, the truth is, British kids weren't taught about the people in the colonies. They weren't taught to treat them as one of them. They weren't taught why black people are in the UK and they weren't taught that black people are in the UK because we were in Africa and we took people to the Caribbean. And because of all that, the, the, obvious, um, yeah, the, the obvious outcome is that black people are gonna to come to the mother country. So it's gonna be education it's absolutely going to be um, parents bringing up their children to understand the reasons why things happen. Uh, and that nothing is one-dimensional. There are facets to everything. And, and also really important to realise that Britain is not a meritocracy. And actually, if you, if you haven't lived in Britain as a white person for decades, um, it's going to be very, very different to work on a level playing field because your history is one of slavery it's one of not having an identity and it's one of not being able to own land vote or even get an education so you've got to catch up and there's nothing to hand down to your children you're starting from scratch so it's those little things that if you understood them it might just help you understand people of color more and just be kind. Um, and it's just little things that people didn't realise. So for instance, people didn't realise that I got a suntan. And people still say, I didn't know you got a suntan. And it's like, come on. Come on, that's, it's basic stuff. So actually, yeah, what are we teaching our kids in school? Um, let's let's decolonise um, all of our systems, including you know education. And I think that's probably a good place to start. But it will take a few generations.
Yeah, it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because it's almost um, a catch-22. You almost can't have one without the other because it's like we need our teachers to be decolonised, but who's doing that to them? You know, if we're waiting for 30 years, like who's doing the work now to make sure that those teachers are willing to teach, you know? We talk about, say, for example, our politicians, who's going to be doing the work to make sure that they're representing all communities, regardless of heritage or colour. And, you know, we're, we can all look at the record to see the politicians who are completely insensitive with race within the police service as well you know it's the same thing it's like what do we see on the streets and how is that reflected in the behavior and it's like how are we going to get it is it just has to be a slow process doesn't mm. it because hopefully like with initiatives that you mentioned before and initiatives that will be happening in schooling that will be happening in in the nhs and all of these huge institutions within britain only as those small changes are being made now hopefully that's going to allow us to build upon foundations for so in 20 or 30 years we can live in a kind of I don't know they want to call it post-racial society these these kind of things it's yeah it's just I guess it's doing the work now and it's sort of plugging in holes almost isn't it filling in the gaps where you can and then hopefully the next generation up will be have a stronger foundation to build upon yes yeah uh, and that's it so um it's really ironic for me because our utopia surely is to for everyone just to be human but in order but we know that we have racism so in order to understand it we have to categorize categorize to you know infinitesimal detail whether it is your gender your preference your gender at birth the color which mix you are so we can categorize people into matrices and then we can analyze um, find out what the problem is, start to fix it. So actually, the irony is, instead of me being able to say I'm just a human, I have to say what type of human I am um, in order to be analysed. Uh, so hopefully sometime in the future we can just all be human again. Mm. And it, it, it's, it's an absolutely crazy world. And um, interestingly, I didn't realise that 300 years ago, race wasn't even a concept, you know? So it's been created, and it's such a powerful concept, it's so difficult to deconstruct. Yeah. I think um, just reflecting on the, the labels there, it's interesting, isn't it? But I think I definitely feel empower, empowered in some way, being able, like, like we said at the start, being able to choose it. And it's definitely nice being able to kind of come to you and say, I'm mixed race, and mm, you can say, mm. you're mixed race, and even though our, our backgrounds are different, have sort of a level of affinity. Um, and again, returning to, to being Cornish as well, that's something that until last year and the kind of creation of Black Voices Cornwall and the anti-racism movement within Cornwall, before that I didn't have anyone to relate to really. And, and that whole uprising was, was such a privilege to be able to to connect with people like yourself and you know it's reclaiming that label isn't it and using it for our own benefit um have you noticed any changes through the duration of your career so obviously you've started now with this role mm. um 
has that role come out of the uprisings last year following the murder of George Floyd or was that work that was kind of already going on and developing? So um, Devon and Cornwall Police um, have had an equality, diversity and inclusion department for 20 years and even through austerity some other forces mothballed certain departments and that was in some forces might have been the first to go but we've kept it so actually there's been work ongoing for 20 odd years and um, so that shows the commitment and I've worked nationally and I, I know that Devon and Cornwall Police are among the top in terms of commitment and, and activity in order to improve so I got seconded to the NPCC, so that's the National Police Chiefs Council, to work on the National um, uh, Race Plan of Action, which was a direct response to the murder of George Floyd. And after six months of doing that, um, I was approached by our executive team to, to work in this role. And um, there is a lot of work that is ongoing and there wasn't capacity to do it all. So my role was kind of created and that's what I've been doing. So, have I seen a difference? So when I joined the police, there was still a time when you would hear racist language and behaviour. And although it wasn't necessarily directed at me, you would hear racist words and comments being used in police stations. Uh, being new, it's really difficult to challenge. So what's happened now is that doesn't happen, but sometimes, um, well, when um, things are clamped down upon and are made unacceptable, it gets driven underground, doesn't it? And that's the microaggressions that we were talking about. And you end up with microaggressions and you end up feeling that lukewarm reception is more bewildering than outright rejection because you're second guessing all the time why there's silence after you've said something, why the room goes quiet, why no one's made you a cup of tea and you think, is it because they don't like me or is it because they can't? Do you know what I mean? Just things like that. So what I'm finding is more microaggressions and less over racist behaviour. We have come a long way. And um, the simple fact that I am giving talks to executives, senior leaders and new joiners to have this conversation means that we are really, really committed. What I will say is there is a fear among people to have these conversations so it comes around in full circle again and I for one was starting to suffer from race fatigue where everything is about race I don't want it to be the first thing people think I'm going to say when I open my mouth however it's a really important cause so the way I tackle that is that inclusion and diversity is directly linked to high level of performance because if you've got a happy and inclusive workforce it makes policing easier and more cost-effective to deliver because you don't have sickness, you don't have complaints, you don't have instability, you have better use of powers and you have a better engagement with community. So you get your internal culture right and then everything else will flow from it. And that's the way that I tackle people who might not get diversity because there'll always be those people um, and you come in from that angle. So. I'll let you know how I get on, but um, I'm enjoying my role at the moment. Yeah, that's um, a really powerful sentiment, I think. And, and I've worked with a few brands on sort of improving their diversity and inclusion. And sometimes it is just coming down to the figures, isn't it? It's saying, like, you will have 
like better statistics if you have a happier workplace you will sell more products if you use diverse models you really have to spell it out to some people mm. who are resistant don't you know it's unfortunate but i think if it's helping us to achieve the goal that means a sort of safer and happier world for us and our compatriots to kind of live in then it's worth using it in that way and also for you i guess on a bigger level it's i'm sure you've, you've had the job for years you want to be proud of the place that you work at and you want it to do well don't you and i think that's such a good place to, to for it to come from and probably why it's quite important that it's been doing it's being done internally as well mm. with yourself who's got years of experience on the ground doing the same work as everybody else rather than getting in an external agency and i think sort of the last question on your job how have you found policing in such a white area as a non-white officer um, and have you noticed a difference you said you've you've policed in other locations as well and it's just about that response to you by the community um, and do you think you've avoided any of the conflicts that black or mixed race officers in diverse areas like London or Birmingham or Manchester might have experienced that kind of um, I think you sort of used the word traitor when we mm. when we first spoke. Mm. So um, when I joined the police I was basically a white person with brown skin. There's no two ways about it. I sound the way I sound, I speak the Queen's English and um, if I phoned someone up to arrange to take a statement, when I turned up they would question whether I was the person that phoned them up because clearly I don't sound like I've got brown skin. So though that's again a microaggression. It's, it's small things like being asked um, whether you're local, where are you really from, the little things. But I... I have been racially abused by drunk people. Drunk people, when you arrest them, will pick anything. So, bald, black, skinny, so I'd, I'd had it. But, um, yeah, so you do get abused, uh, and then you, you get really fearful that race is it's an easy target, and, and you do, you, your defences go up, you get this knot in your stomach. But actually, have I had a lot of racist abuse? No. So then you said, what's it like to police in, in other areas? So I haven't done frontline policing out of Cornwall, Devon and Cornwall. So I've always been policing in, the, in this area. And actually, what I do is I use my skills to, um, to relate to a really broad spectrum of people. So interestingly, I feel that I'm accepted in almost any culture. So because of the way I behave, I'm accepted in, in white society. Because of the way I look, I'm accepted in other societies, so um, whether it be Indian, whether it be Chinese, because actually we've got an affinity that we're minorities. So being mixed is brilliant because um, we are the bridge. Not only are we the bridge between black and white, um, but we also can we can you know have an affinity with all kinds of different people, and that's a really really important gift, and it's helped me in my policing. It's helped me understand how to treat people and how to get the best out of people because actually I know what motivates me and all people want is to be seen and heard and, and that's what I do. Um, and although some of my lessons have been difficult, I believe they've all been really worth it and so because of that I know how to help people also get the best out of people.
oh that's I think that's just beautiful like it's just once you are able to really feel proud of your heritage I just think it's so powerful and I think I don't know about you I don't think I ever had a time where I felt like I didn't want to be brown or mixed race I don't think I had that I think fortunately my mum always made me quite proud of it but it's it's just stepping over that line and being like actually this is amazing it's it's a superpower is kind of the way you're describing it isn't it and the benefits of it and you know for every time that we've been oppressed or abused or felt made to feel different or outside actually it's really awesome being able to to feel proud of yourself mm. when we've been made to feel that we shouldn't be proud of being mixed race or mm. anything other than white i think we can agree that that interview with Ivan gives us a lot to think about it's inspiring to learn about his transformation from a young police officer with no peers to working with executives to tackle racism inside the service. There are, of course, many more deep structural issues of racism inside the police service. For example, just this month, Sergeant Geraint Jones of Devon and Cornwall Police was let off with a written warning for sharing a racist meme about the death of George Floyd in a WhatsApp group with colleagues. The levels of racial profiling in the policing of Devon and Cornwall Police are disproportionate, including the likelihood of being stopped and searched and being a victim of a crime. It's encouraging that the force is providing transparency in sharing this information, but telling that the report needs to be made at all. I was conscious in my questioning of Ivan that I didn't exploit his position to make him the spokesperson for the racism within the police service as is so often the case when people of colour working in these kind of institutions are interviewed. What I hope you can take from this interview is those fundamental experiences felt by all people of colour in Cornwall, no matter what their background, age, heritage, profession, that feeling of being isolated, the microaggressions, the racism within the workplace, the strength to get up and tolerate these sometimes quite hostile environments so that we can continue to live our lives in the place we were born or choose to call home. I'm so grateful for Ivan for being my first guest on the podcast, and I hope you enjoyed our interview as much as I did. Learn. Act. Change. Learn, Act, Change is the segment in which you can get information about how to be actively anti-racist. For our first podcast, I've chosen what I believe is one of the most important campaigns in Britain. Five Times More is a grassroots organisation committed to changing black women's maternal health outcomes in the UK. The name is derived from the fact that historically, black women in the UK were five times more likely to die during or after childbirth than white women. That number has now dropped to just over four times, but this still huge disparity is one of the most heartbreaking and impactful indicators of the structural racism that's pervasive in Britain. The campaign is doing fantastic work. In June 2020, they presented a petition with over 180,000 signatures to Parliament, forcing them to make a real commitment to address this gap. They have called for MPs to sign up to their Black Maternal Health Pledge, which gives clear and impactful steps for lawmakers to take. 
Training has been delivered in hospitals to ensure healthcare workers are aware of the discrepancy in care and, once trained, can wear a badge so that black women can identify them as safe people to talk to about any maternal health concerns. On their website, they have fantastic resources for pregnant women, healthcare professionals and partners, as well as a blog with some difficult but important real-life stories. I'm sure you'd agree that we cannot tolerate that this health gap exists. Black women should not be putting their or their children's lives at risk, giving birth in a country with one of the greatest healthcare systems and lowest birth mortality rates in the world. To support their work, please visit their website, www.5xmore.com. On the website, you can find out more information, but more importantly, click on that action tab at the top of the page and donate to the crowdfunder. If you are a black woman, there is a briefing pack to help you structure a letter to your MP and crucially, fill out the Black Maternity Experience Survey to help build data critical to ensuring a change is made. Make sure to follow five times more on social media to keep up with the campaign and share it with your contacts to make sure their impact continues to grow. I'll make sure all the links that you need to follow five times more are included in the show notes. To close off the podcast, I'd like to share with you a poem written by my friend JC Hall, who has English and Jamaican heritage. JC and I met through our mutual friend Eleanor, who we joked used each of us as her surrogate brown friend whenever the other wasn't around, and we became close when we realised the similarities in our experiences growing up as black and mixed race in Cornwall. JC is a fantastic writer, her work is honest, beautiful and often deeply cutting. The piece she has chosen to share is called There Are More Shells Here, which was written for the Hidden Sussex Anthology, and we're lucky enough to have the recording of JC reading it herself. Enjoy. There are more shells here. With Brighton out of sight and out of mind, my thoughts wander to Cornish cliffs and Scottish shores. The shells remind me of these other homes, other prisons that I felt the loss of so acutely, homes that were brittle and heavy to carry, and yet that somehow held me completely. Home is a mystery to me. Some days I have many, and some days I am lost, no sure to run my tears down. As a child, I would point to the sky when they asked me where I came from. Why did I look different to them? Today, I still look to the sky for answers. I find them, I lose them, I absorb, I renew. This existence is a matter of survival. The sea, the sky, the shells, they know this and they do not fear it. Sometimes when I'm watching the sunset, I want to climb inside it. I want to live and breathe that beauty. So why don't I? I know I must have night so I can have day. Yet when my own sunset happens, I hide. I dress shame up in different ways and it multiplies. Sea air brings a rhythmic reflection. 
The tide wears down my defences and I am no longer ashamed. Now, like the shells, I am exposed and enduring. Wasn't that beautiful? I hope it resonated with you as much as it did with me. If you'd like to learn more about Josie or read more of her writing, check out her website and follow her on social media. I'll put the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening today. I'd like to thank our contributors, Ivan and JC, the Black Voices Cornwall Committee for their support, Dennis Nightingale for his knowledge and advice, and Karen Cooper for composing the beautiful music. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next month.